2: Today on First Lady and Friends, we had an incredibly special guest. Her name is Elizabeth Smart. I'm sure you all know her. We had a great conversation about how her experience has propelled her forward in her advocacy and about parenthood and all the things that she's doing now. Can't wait for you to take a listen. Let's get proximate. We are here... First Lady and Friends with a very special guest, um, someone that I have met before, but I am so excited to get to know better. We have Elizabeth Smart here in our studio to talk to us today. We're so glad you're here, Elizabeth.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: Absolutely, um, it's, it's it's our pleasure and um, I just so many people know you and you've done some incredible work in the advocacy space and but, but before we get into all that I would love to talk about your family talk to me about um, your your kiddos and your husband and what and how are they doing and what's going on um, in your world. Um, my family's great um my I have three kids
0: uh girl boy, girls, seven, five, and three, and I mean it's summer, so life's a little chaotic. I mean they all wanted to come down here today, and I had to convince them that that wasn't a good idea, but they thought I was wrong, so they're definitely <laughs> upset that they're not here right now um so I'll definitely have to go make it up to them later but uh no it's it's great they're the best part of my life and probably the most exhausting part of my life um, yeah. um and then yeah my husband he's he's great and nothing quite like a utah summer yeah so where are you now are so you so we're up on we're in the wasatch back oh perfect yeah, yeah. oh perfect and we and love it so it back beautiful there. yeah
2: we were just up there uh, last week up by camas just past camas and oh my goodness it's just beautiful up there this time of year it
0: is now that not that I don't love Salt Lakes I do you know yeah. born and raised Salt Lake City but now that I've made the jump to the Wasatch back I I don't know if I will ever come back down <laughs> to the Wasatch
2: front yeah and I think so many people there because it's growing so much uh, there and I think people have just when when I was growing up, we played a lot of, you know, like South Summit and North Summit when I was in high school. We would travel all the way up there from Sampe County, from North Sampe to play them. And it was just so small. And now it's, it's growing so much up there.
0: Yeah, but I mean, we, we love it. We've been, I mean, I've been, you know, Park City, Midway, all in that area for the last 10 years. And I love it back
2: there. Yeah, it's so great. And your, and your kids, how are they liking school? Is it, um, are you happy with, with their, with their education and what's going on there? Uh, well, my, I mean, my daughter's going
0: into second grade and my little boy's going into kindergarten. So, so far, so good. (laughs) Um, ask me in a couple more years and I will let you know.
2: (laughs) I was saying like, yeah, the adult children, we were talking on the way in about my adult children. We're on the, we're on the other end of that. And. It's a little tricky, but it's good. So they're they're little. And people always say, enjoy them when they're little. They grow up so fast. But it's kind of um, annoying when people say that when you're little and you're up to your eyeballs and little kid stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. I always have to forewarn anyone who ever rides in the car with me because anytime you open any door on my car, it's a waterfall of, like, goldfish and dirty clothes <laughs> and water bottles and, like, Happy Meal wrappers, and I'm just sorry in advance. Yes, it's, it's not clean. I mean, I can vacuum it out all I want, yeah. or let like pay someone else to vacuum it out all I want.
2: It will never
0: stay clean.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I always, and I think as moms, I think we, I think we all have to give each other some grace. And I think we do. I think we're harder on ourselves than than anybody else is on us. Don't you think? Yeah, and
0: I think I, I feel like I heard someone or some mom say either. I'm clean and my hair is washed. My kids are clean and their hair is washed. My house is clean or my car is clean. It's impossible to have all four.
2: Yeah. And for sure, that car is going to be the last thing on the list. (laughs) Yes. I'm. Yeah, that definitely. (laughs) as long as it's it's, bottom, as long as it's running. (laughs) Yes. The cleanliness is kind of going to be at the bottom. Oh, it's fun. I love. um, So talk to me a little bit about being a mom. What's what's your favorite thing? What's your hardest thing?
0: Um my favorite thing is honestly having I mean not that not that I ever doubted that my parents loved me unconditionally and I always felt that I loved them unconditionally but then when I had my own children I mean it really brought it to life even more and I guess the love that they give me is is the best part for me um because it's just so I don't know. Pure and exuberant and they always get happy to see me come home. Well, except maybe my oldest sometimes. I mean, <laughs> heaven forbid the TV's going, then she's like, "Oh, hey. It's you." <laughs> but if it's off, then they're always usually pretty excited when I come home or and they just I mean, they just love life so much. I mean, they get excited over, you know, riding their bikes outside whereas me I can be like, "Eh," that does not sound that fun or or whatever it is i mean they get excited over everything and i feel like their excitement helps me to be excited mm-hmm.
2: yeah i love that do you still have a lot of uh siblings around do you do you still get together with siblings and and um is your how's how's your family doing there
0: yeah uh all of my siblings currently are in utah i mean oh, we're that's all great. probably I mean, probably within an hour and a half of each other, I mean that's probably the the biggest stretch of distance between any two of us wow, and so yeah we we still get together and have a good time and you know my my parents are both you know living their living their different lives, mm-hmm. and they're both doing well, so
2: I think that's all I can ask for. Oh, absolutely! That's that's neat. It's neat to have your your siblings so close and everybody close. Um, that's hard to do when you have a big family like you do and like <laughs> I do um, to have them really close together. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about um, your work that you're doing now. Uh, so you are you you've had your foundation and you've been doing work there. And talk a little bit about your foundation, what it is, what it is now, what it was, what it is now, and and the things you're working on now. So my dad and I
0: started the Elizabeth Smart Foundation back in 2011, and we wanted it to focus on prevention education um against sexual assault, sexual exploitation, um, and I mean, an education for women and children on the topic. And um, then over the years, it's uh, become more and more active. And um, recently, just this past January, we merged with the Malouf Foundation, and we had done a number of projects with them over the years. And actually, I first heard about Malouf was when I was traveling around the country, giving presentations. and a lot of times, as I'm sure you you are well experienced and versed in, there's Q&A after doing a presentation and people, one of the common questions I'd get asked is, how do we recognize human trafficking or how do we recognize signs of abuse? And, you know, there were answers that I could give, but I mean, I, I was not trafficked. So speaking directly to what to look for felt a little bit foreign, so I felt like I needed to become better educated in that. So I started, you know, scrolling, searching, studying up on the internet, and I came across uh, this web sol- website, excuse me, website called IamonWatch.org. Mm-hmm. And it was this mini course on how to recognize signs of human trafficking. And so I went through and I took the course and it was really good. It was really well done. It was really well thought out. Um, It covered a lot of different areas that maybe when you think of human trafficking, you don't immediately think of. And, you know, I took all of the um, I answered all the questions along the way. And when I got to to the end of it, I remember wondering, who is this? Where did this come from? I feel like I should have heard of this before I mean I feel like it would have shown up like on my plate as opposed to me like having to go out and hunt it down and I don't honestly remember I mean it's been a number of years ago that I took it or that I first took it and I don't remember if it was on the website but somehow I was able to track it back to this organization called Maloof and then lo and behold they're based in Utah and I just remember sitting there having my mind completely blown thinking, how have I not heard of these people? I mean, I feel like I've been very active in this space of advocacy. And I feel like I typically hear about a lot of the organizations that are really at the forefront of this, or we cross paths, or, you know, we end up collaborating or something. How have I not heard about them? So that just kind of began me anyway, keeping my eye on them. And then as time passed, I mean, they did reach out and they introduced me to uh, to what they were doing. And we started collaborating more and more. And I was so impressed because they are local, but they really have a global view. I mean, they really want to change the world for a better, for better, for survivors. And I had just been so impressed, so much so that, The end of last summer, they approached me and they said, well, Elizabeth, you know what? We would really love to make uh, our relationship a little bit deeper. And me sitting there, I was like, oh, what do you mean? And they're like, well, we'd really love to take it as deep as you're willing to go. And I was like, "Okay, well, can you just speak like openly to me? Like, what are you thinking? they're like, well, actually, we would love you to come and join our foundations together and given our – Past history and our past collaborations together, honestly, it was one of the easiest decisions I think I've ever made. And even beyond that, you know, I studied music. This is probably the more selfish side of me coming forward. I studied music in college. I did not study nonprofit, I didn't study business administration. I don't know how to, I don't know patent law or tax law or. There's so much I don't understand. I mean, it's been so great because now I can focus on the issues and the topics that I know about, that I can know I can help make a difference on. And together, we we can. We can change not just our local communities, but we can hopefully really make a global impact. And that really excites me. And I don't have to get caught up in trying to figure out, is this the right, am I filing this the correct <laughs> way? Am I going to hear back from the IRS in like five months
2: telling me I did it wrong? So yeah. it is a huge relief um, for me. Yeah. Oh, that's, you know, and I don't think people really understand that we, I, I like you, I mean, I education is my background. I studied education and I, I, Got into this world and I was doing an initiative and all of a sudden I'm trying to figure out how to start a 501c3 and do a foundation so that I can do the work that we're trying to do because, you know, I don't people may not know this, but I don't you know, I don't get money from the government. I don't get money from the state to to really run any kind of foundation or do the initiative that I'm doing and so i i totally get what you're saying <laughs> like we we've just gone through that this year trying to set up a a 501c3 and a nonprofit organization to do the work that we're doing and to gather money and and yeah we were probably a little behind on the on the audit process <laughs> and all that stuff and we're like ah we're trying to figure all this out so i totally get that that you can now just focus on the work that you're doing which is incredible I mean,
0: it's it's really intimidating. I mean, it's there's there's so much more to running a nonprofit, a five hundred one c three, than just keeping your vision and focus on on your initiatives. I mean, there are so many other moving parts. And so, for me, you know, having the opportunity to um, combine with the Malouf Foundation and recognize the fact that together we will be able to do so much more and also uh, maybe maybe selfishly now that i don't have to deal with figuring the nitty gritty out with i don't know payroll or accounting or taxes or yeah. or anything in that business world it's it's been just a wonderful i would almost say
2: blissful decision mm. yeah that's fantastic um i want to continue this conversation as we talk a little bit more about what What comes next and what um, your experiences um, have been around legislation and things that have been passed? And and is it working? I want to have that conversation when we come right back.
1: I'm Dave Cawley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office to meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new, cold, Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.
2: We are back here and so honored to have Elizabeth Smart here on First Lady and Friends. And, uh... I want to talk about you know your your story of of trauma is well documented and 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 I don't know that anybody doesn't know about it but and so we won't get into that so much as what what came next because you're you're doing advocacy work and your family's done a lot of advocacy work um as a result of of your experience um I, I know there's a lot of, there's been some legislation passed. Let's first of all talk about that and, uh, the things that were, you were able to push forward, um, legislatively and, and sort of how that's, how that came about, what that process was like. And maybe, uh, if you feel like it's doing what it was supposed to do.
0: Sure. So for me, it started off honestly, honestly, it's like, wading into the shallow end of the swimming pool. Uh, My dad, he really blazed the trail for me. Um, He would be involved in legislation and he would come home and he'd say, Elizabeth, what do you think about this? Or how do you feel about that? Or, um, you know, what is... How do you feel like, do you feel like this could have been different for you or would this have helped you? And then depending on my answer, it'd be like, well, you know, I'm actually working on this piece of legislation. Do you do you want to come? Do you have any interest in coming? And usually if it was something that I had a strong answer to, I usually felt like I wanted to go. And so I, you know, I've done it on both the local and uh, national national scale where I've gone up and met with the different, you know, senators or congressmen and um, lobbied for legislation. And I feel like we have come a long way since since my rescue. I think that we still have a long way to go. I mean, I think of so many victims and survivors and... (sighs) if they if they're found if they come back alive um the focus typically shifts away from them and onto well we need to punish this person and the sad thing about that is that about only 25 out of every 1000 cases that go to court actually are prosecuted mm. i mean it's abysmal it's it's that's terrible sad. that's so sad and so but i mean the 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 court system for victims is, is a hellish place. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the common steps that victims experience when going through a court case is they're put on the stand and every mistake of their life is brought forward to show that they're maybe not the most credible victim or to say, well, they're not perfect. Somehow they contributed to this. And, and that's not fair because it really doesn't matter what your background is or what you did before this happens. I mean, yeah, people make mistakes all the time, but nobody yeah. deserves to be trafficked or abused or raped. And it can be so difficult to then, you know, not just come forward and speak out about what happened, Um It's terrifying to make a report to the police. It's terrifying to move forward in a court case and then to have, like, your own – your personal integrity, um, I mean, more or less destroyed. Mm -hmm. And then to realize that your chances of actually winning a case are very slim. I mean, 25 out of 1,000. That's Mm. terrible. Yeah. Um, So then do
2: do a lot of the victim survivors, do they – Do they make the calculation that it's not worth it to get on this town? Many, many
0: victims, they never report. Mm. They never report and they don't press charges um, because they already feel like it's an uphill battle. I have spoken in all 50 states and whenever there's been an opportunity for me to mingle after the presentation, I've always without fail had people approach me and say, you know, the same thing happened to me or something similar happened to me when I was younger, um, but I've never shared it with anyone. Or I told my mom and she didn't believe me. Or I told my dad or I told someone and they didn't believe me. So there's always, I would say, an element of fear and doubt as to whether or not people are believed. And honestly. I feel like if I had to pinpoint something that made the biggest difference for me in my healing and moving forward is that I was never doubted Mm -hmm. on, on a grand scale. I mean, there's always mean people out there. There's always people who will hate you no matter what. And so, yes, I've, I've dealt with people who don't like me for whatever reason. Unbelievable. But, But, (laughs) or who have called me a liar or whatever. I mean, we all, we all deal with it. But I've never had that on a grand scale. Overwhelmingly, I've been supported. Um, my family always believed me. And so I feel like for me, that allowed me to really let go of the past and move into my future because because I could, because I was believed and supported. And so I I feel like that is one of the most important things that we can give our victims and survivors. And actually, that is one of my... Nearest and dearest causes. Every November, we run a campaign through the entire month called "We Believe You," and on one side, it is to help victims and survivors know that that we do believe them. That there is a whole community. That there are thousands of people out here who do believe victims and will support them and love them and be there for them. On the flip side of it, I mean, you know, you you. Uh, got your degree in education, and you probably know better than anyone how much safety education kids are given. Um, You know, don't cross the street without looking both ways. Um, If you catch on fire, you stop, drop, and roll. But one out of three women will be sexually abused in their lifetime. Have you ever been given any information on what to do or how you should respond? And, And no one has. Yeah, No one has. And so the other side, the flip side to letting victims know that we believe them is that we want to provide education and resources out there to communities so that they know how to respond. Because whether you consciously know of someone that you can think of, oh, so-and-so, she was raped or not you do actually know someone just because statistically the odds are so high yeah. you definitely know someone and you probably know more than one person you probably know a whole bunch of people who have whether they've come forward and and admitted it or said it out loud
2: voiced it or whether they've stayed silent you do know someone who has been abused yeah absolutely it's so true and and you know we've had podcasts um we've you know we've had Um, Sapria, folks, on here before, and we talked about this a little bit. Of this, this idea of my my thought always goes to you know. First of all, yes, we need to take better care of of the people that have experienced this trauma, and we need to do better at believing them, and we need to do all the things that create an environment of healing. Um, And then, can we turn our attention? also to how do we stop this from happening so more and more women and 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 children don't have to be um be survivors they don't have to go through this and and i guess you know some of the legislation you've talked worked through and one of them was the amber alert Um, so talk a little bit about that and do you Do you feel like this is working? Do you feel like the Amber Alert and and the system and this piece of legislation, is it doing what it's intended to do?
0: So I was involved in the Amber Alert pretty quickly after I was rescued. And I do feel like it is a powerful tool, although it is, I mean, there's a certain amount of requirements that have to be met before they will issue an Amber Alert. And time is of the essence. I mean, as soon as someone disappears, you want to get the word out as quickly and as loudly and as widespread as possible. So, if it takes 24 hours to get an Amber Alert issued, that's that's difficult um, because those first 24 hours are really the most important. That's your greatest chance of of rescuing them i mean after 24 hours your chances of finding them of finding them alive uh, they they decrease i mean rapidly i mean drastically yeah so it is um it is a powerful tool and yes i do believe it is doing good um but could it do better of course absolutely
2: yeah yeah. And I know we had a little there's some issues with it in the state of Utah because they were uh, it, it's just tough. It's so tough because, you know, if if you if it if the Amber Alert is going off all the time, you start to tune out. And so that that's the difficulty. And, you know, there were a lot of um, I think there were some issues with uh, non-custodial parents. And anyway, it's it's a whole thing to work through, and it's really tough. But but I do think you're exactly right. I think we can always continue to improve the way we we do this, and based on people like you who who understand how it works, we need your voices. You know, your voice to help us to understand how to how to be better. On that, is there any other legislation that you sort of? championed or helped um bring about that that you feel like is doing uh really good work in this space
0: um i mean my i was also involved with my dad on the adam Walsh safety and protection act and the sex offender registry and then locally um a few years ago my dad and i we we went up and we were pushing another piece of legislation forward and it was an opt out as opposed to an opt in. Um, so when your child's in school and a teacher sends home a permission slip saying, you know, if you want your child to attend this, um, what is it called, assembly, mm-hmm. or you know, as- attend this presentation, you need to sign this permission slip. So instead of having to sign it for them to attend it, it was really the opposite. So having to sign it if you did not want them to attend because it's just so easy for children to fall through the cracks and if they experience abuse at home, um, what I mean, are their guardians going to sign a permission slip for them to attend a presentation on abuse and what to do? I mean, it's it's hard to say, but in my mind, it would make sense for them not to. Um, And so being able to have the opposite where I totally respect parents who want to take this issue on at home. And that's great. That's fantastic. I mean, really, it's an issue that should be approached from all sides. I mean, it should be talked about at home and it should be talked about at school. It should be talked about everywhere because, unfortunately, abuse does happen everywhere. And being able to recognize it and knowing what your options are and knowing what to do next are huge because if it's coming from. Um, a figure of authority or power or maybe they have a lot of respect. Um, it can be very intimidating it can be terrifying to be that small person saying, well, actually no yeah So um, I do feel like that's I do feel like that was a useful piece of legislation and then most recently with the Malouf Foundation, um, there was, There was I I can't even think of exact wording, but it's been in one of the the most recent sessions um, with offenders who are looking at child sexual assault material, sexual abuse material online, and stricter guidelines for sentencing Mm. on that Mm. because that is that is not okay. I've heard people in the past say, "Oh well, it's a victimless crime," and I just. I just I can't understand how they think that you are actually watching some innocent soul being victimized repeatedly and you're getting enjoyment out of that. I mean, that is so wrong, so morally wrong on every level. Um, It 100 percent is a crime that does have
2: victims and you're watching
0: the victims.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So Let's expand a little bit on this idea of, of prevention and how we how we talk about getting children in a place where they know what to do next. Um, and let's let's continue that conversation when we come right back. We are back here on First Lady and Friends with Elizabeth Smart. We're so happy to have you here. And these these are such important conversations and your perspective is just so incredibly valuable. Um, and you've pushed through, like you've talked about this incredible legislation. Um, first of all, I have this question. This is kind of off topic, but like, how did your dad have experience in, in legislative affairs? How,
1: or no, did he just no, sort of learn on the job
0: too? <laughs> he, he learned on the job and he just felt like no child should experience what I experienced and, He didn't want to see any other child experience that, and he didn't want to see the family experience, you know, the secondary trauma Mm -hmm. that comes with it, because if you're, if you're someone you love goes through immense pain or, you know, is a victim of of a crime or a violent crime, I mean, you experience trauma as well, and I mean, it can be catastrophic. I mean, it's not, when you hear the term secondary trauma, you might just think, oh, well, it's not as intense as, I don't know, first degree trauma. I'm not even sure primary (laughs) trauma, Yeah, but
2: I mean, it very much can be. Mm, Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, and I think all of us watching what happened to you and your family, I think, I think most people just like the heartbreak. We, we all sort of, it, it was one of those things where it was like, this could totally happen to me. I mean, you know, a lot of the crimes or things that happen are like, oh, that that happens to you know that happens to somebody else. I don't know. We just looked at it this, I think all of us, and said, this, my gosh, this this could happen to anyone, and how do we prevent that? so let's let's talk a little bit about this prevention piece. Um first of all, you've this legislation and these these things that you've worked on would would they have helped you had they been in place before now and maybe what what do you think does help the most to sort of keep our keep safe keep children safe from from these from these crimes ultimately
0: the only way to eliminate rape To eliminate sexual violence or abuse is for rapists to stop raping, abusers to stop abusing. Um, That's really the only way that we will eliminate it. And that sounds really depressing uh, coming out of my mouth. But we can, there are a lot of things that we can do to make us a little bit less at risk. Um, many predators they look for vulnerability, they they look for that opportunity, um, they they look for maybe children who are a little bit more on the shy side or a little bit quieter, or maybe um, maybe their home life is struggling a little bit, or maybe they're being bullied at school. I mean, whatever it is, yeah. you yeah. know, they look for vulnerability, and that's what they that's what they look for. So one of the best things that we can do is to start having these conversations earlier and more often and from lots of different places. I think of my childhood and honestly, I didn't know anyone who was raped. Nobody ever talked to me about it. I didn't actually know the difference between uh, rape and enthusiastic consensual sex. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, it was all the same thing. So that when I was eventually raped, um, I felt... I felt terrible. I felt like the same thing. And, you know, being raised Mormon, Mm -hmm. very active, um, and not having those conversations where there's always a lot of emphasis been put on staying a virgin until marriage, no sex before marriage. I mean, that added a whole extra layer of guilt and shame and feelings of worthlessness and filthiness. So having these conversations early and often, they are very important mm. and it's hard and it's scary. And frankly, I'm at the beginning of having those conversations with my kids. And even now I am I keep thinking, how am I going to get into this topic? And I mean, with my oldest daughter, I'm like, OK, by the end of the summer, I'm going to have taken <laughs> the next step in this conversation because we talk about safety all the time and she'll roll her eyes. My other two will roll their eyes. They'll, they'll say, we know mama, mm-hmm. you just want us to be safe. <laughs> um, but now I feel like my, my oldest is getting to a point where she's ready for the next step in that mm-hmm. conversation. And, and honestly, it terrifies me. Yeah. I mean, it, it does. Um, I'm nervous. I've given myself this time frame where it has to happen so that I, I will follow through and then we can continue talking about it until she's ready for the next step. And, mm-hmm. and the, more knowledge and probably more details, you know, with each and every step, because I, she's, I mean, all my kids, they are the most precious part of my life. Mm -hmm. And if anything happened to them, I mean, it would, it would break my heart. It would, it would destroy me. And I mean, I feel like, and I'm sure my parents felt that way about me, that they would rather go through anything didn't matter what it was then see me suffer that way and I feel the same way about my children and so I want them to I want them to be aware of what does happen in this world, what is possible. And then I want them to be able to recognize the red flags should there ever appear any so that they know what to do so that they can come tell me or they can come tell my husband or they can, you know, if they trust their teacher, they could go tell their teacher. Um, But I want them to know that we are here for them, that we will support them, that if they don't feel comfortable, that there's a reason they don't feel comfortable and they shouldn't just push it aside and think they're making something out of nothing because that's, that's not right. And I mean, it's as a parent, like I'm not a professional parent. You know, I've only been doing it for seven years. I am so open to advice. I don't think there is such a thing. Thank goodness. (laughs) I feel like I'm more often than not flying by the seat of my pants. But um, some of the things that other people have told me that I feel like is helpful and is very good to know is helping our children to set boundaries and then us as parents and adults respecting their boundaries. So for example, um my, I mean, my husband is is from Scotland. So we have a lot of family who lives far away and they don't get to see them very often. And so when we do get together, it's easy to be like, okay, you know, go give, you know, uncle so-and-so like a kiss now, or go give him a hug. Come on, you never get to see him. It'd be so nice of you to give him a hug, or it'd be so nice of you to give him a kiss. And. And it's, it's easy to be put in that situation to like want to pressure them into showing affection. But in the long run, that actually is instilling the message in them that they don't want to, but we're telling them that they have to mm-hmm. and making them disregard their own boundaries. Maybe that was their boundary. They didn't feel comfortable, you know, giving a certain uncle or family member a hug or a kiss. They didn't want to. And yet I'm sitting there saying you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of cancels out the whole idea of boundaries in children's head that the boundaries that they set can be respected and should be respected. And that, that, you know, I tell my children all the time, like nobody, if anyone ever touches you, you need to tell me if anyone ever makes you feel uncomfortable, you need to tell me. But if I'm making them feel uncomfortable by forcing them to hug someone, they don't want to hug. Why would they then tell me in return? Um, so it's building that trust with your child, helping them to understand that they it's okay to have boundaries. It's good to have boundaries and that as parents and adults, that we respect their boundaries so that they can tell us if, um, if something happens heaven forbid yeah. something happens. So it is important, but then also giving them the tools to know what to do. Once again, heaven forbid if something does happen yeah. so that, Instead of just being like, he told me to keep it a secret or she told me to keep it a secret. I'm not supposed to tell anyone. Uh, I'll get in trouble if I tell someone or my parents will get in trouble or or my sister will be hurt or or they'll go after my brothers. I mean, those those are very common threats. They're very real threats um, to, to children, to victims, to victims across the board. And it's a lot of reasons as to why they may not speak out, why they might not share what's happened to them. And so helping them to have these conversations and recognize that this is, this behavior is not acceptable. It's not okay. And, and helping them to understand that if this does happen, that they should tell you or they should tell someone that they trust, that they can be protected, that you will have their corner. Uh, that's huge.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's such great advice. I think that's amazing. Um those those are really difficult conversations to have with your kid. Um I have a 15-year-old daughter and we've we've had conversations all the way along and and they're not they're not easy for me. It's hard to it's hard to I mean you want to have those conversations and I know they and they're important. It's hard for them you you don't want to sort of think that the the world is ready to victimize you but but in some ways sometimes it is. And so for them to be prepared, but also to understand what a loving kind relationship can and should look like is is such a important part of that as well. Um do you think? At some point, and maybe it's already happened, do you think you will share your experience with your children? Uh, I mean, my children know. Okay. I mean, not not extensive details right. or anything.
0: But they do know because they know that I'm not at home with them. And so they'll ask me, where are you going? Why are you going? Why do you have to do that? I don't want you to go. Uh, can't you just cancel? <laughs> and um, so... I have had to explain to them, well, this is what I do because I don't want what happened to me to happen to anyone else. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, leads to, well, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. Um, so those conversations have already begun. Um, that None of them could tell you extensive detail about anything. Um, but my oldest, I mean, she could tell you the most. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she could tell you that a bad that a bad man came and he took me away and he hurt me and I was rescued one day. She mm. could tell you that,
2: mm.
0: maybe a little bit more, but not much.
2: <laughs> That's incredible, and I think it's really an important conversation um, for all of our children to have, um, for us to have with our children. Um, as an educator, I, you know, you know, we were taught to look for those signs and and for people, and I I, I just remember my daughter from the earliest ages. Thankfully, I mean, I guess, thankfully or not, she is who she is. So I am thankful for that. Um, but she's very assertive. She's the youngest of, you know, three boys and then she's the baby. And so she is very assertive. Um, and so, I, but I have tried to talk to her about um, that. That is good. But I I also worry that we, we do have to teach those less assertive uh, a little bit shyer. You talked about sometimes they are more victimized because that's what a, a predator looks for. Um, how do you keep your your kids' personalities while at the same time helping them to to be assertive and to have these you know these uh, aware this awareness of of the way they need to to create those boundaries.
0: That's a great question, and <laughs> I don't know the answer, to. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's why it does come down to each parent to take this very responsibly and very seriously, because nobody knows your child hopefully better than you do. And hopefully you know them well enough to know what they're ready for, and so you can – you can gauge how much they can handle. And I think, I, I hope, I mean, in my mind, um, I want to have, I always want to have a strong relationship with my children. And hopefully by having these uncomfortable conversations a lot, first, they'll become less uncomfortable. Okay. And secondly, that builds that trust and that knowledge in them that they feel like they they have the tools that they need. But they don't necessarily
2: need to be scared of life. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Um, And something, you know, a balance. I'm trying to. Aren't we all? I know. Oh, the joys of parenting. I mean, I feel like I'm in over my head. I know, right? I'm still in over my head, and I'm 23 years in. So, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 tough. Parenting is, I think, will always be our toughest. Toughest job and the job that never ends, which is really good and really hard sometimes. Absolutely. (laughs) And I think you're doing a wonderful job. I mean, you, you really are, um, addressing these things and you really are, um, you, you are a more quiet personality and, um, you've become just this really strong powerful voice for so many people so i really appreciate that work that you're doing oh well thank you very much <laughs> thank you um look, before we before we end here i have just um i think it would be fun and we haven't done this for a long time but i think it would be fun um just a few little rapid fire questions that we that we'll do right okay. here again okay so name um maybe three of your favorite sounds Um, When I come home and
0: my little three-year-old and—well, all all of them, actually, but definitely my little three-year-old, like, come running up to me and being like, Mommy! (laughs) I love that. Also silence when they go to bed. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The lack of sound, maybe. Yes. But knowing that they're alive and safe. Yes. Just sleeping. Breathing.
2: Breathing, yes.
0: (laughs) And my other favorite sound— this is going to sound so silly, but I have an Apple Watch and when all three of my rings close. Yes. <laughs> right?
2: I love that. I'm so accomplished. Yes, I did it. I did it today. I'm like, it's like 11 o'clock and you're like, oh, I need to stand up one more time. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Uh, maybe let's ask what podcasts or TV shows do you binge? I binge the, the British Bake Off. Oh, yeah. All the time. So great. Love it. So great. Love it. Yeah, and your husband's probably like, yes, those are my people.
0: Well, he'll watch it with (laughs) me the first time, but when it's like the 10th, or no, the second through hundredth time (laughs) watching it, he's less excited about it.
2: I have to say, I am like completely addicted to any British TV. I don't know if it's just from my like ancestry or, or what, but... I you know I actually subscribe to BritBox. <laughs> oh well, so do we. <laughs> it's the best, and I just find um, it's so delightful. So yes. So if you could talk to one person in history, who would it be?
0: Oh, I think I'd be very interested in speaking to Queen Elizabeth.
2: Mm, yeah, my namesake. Just
0: kidding. Yes, of course <laughs> she's not. But I would be interested. I mean, she was such a powerful woman in history, and mm-hmm. I would, I'd be interested to speak to her. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That would be amazing. So
0: the, we'll end with this one. And I mean, Queen Elizabeth back in the day. Yes, I mean, yes, I'm sure modern day Queen
2: Elizabeth about. would be very interesting. And but a but whole like, host of history. Tudor, yes. like way yes. back when. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So interesting. Um, a snapshot of a regular moment in your life that brings you true joy. Probably no makeup,
0: pairing a messy bun, athleisure, <laughs> and hanging out on the sofa, probably watching something off of Disney Plus for the <laughs> billionth time with my kids eating popcorn. I love
2: it. I love it. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. This has just been really enlightening and just a real privilege to, to get to know you better. And I know our listeners will be so um, appreciative of, of you and hearing your story. And we just are so thrilled to have have gotten to have you here today so thank you
0: thank you thank you for having me
2: elizabeth also has a podcast it's called smart talks you can find it wherever you find your podcasts also check out malooffoundation.org and elizabethsmartfoundation.org thanks for being a friend two years
0: ago americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the kabul airport
1: (laughs) there's desperation and anguish